This Amuse podcast must be credited to ANA, all Nippon Airlines. Their frequent newsletters encouraging people to begin planning journeys to Japan prompted this conversation with a longtime friend, Dave Baskerville. Inez and Dave lived in Japan for many years, first as missionaries, then working in the business world. I hope you find Dave's reflections on Japan informative. Dave Baskerville today. So Dave, tell us about you and Japan. <laughs> well, it goes back quite a ways. Uh, it goes back at least to 1962 and then to 1964 when we first arrived in Japan. The first eight years, uh, we were Lutheran missionaries with kids two, four, and six. And then I went back to business school and uh, was in international business and the rest of my life. And uh, that meant two more assignments in Japan and with responsibility for the rest of Asia. So we, uh, we know a little about it. We call it our second home. Actually, after we retired back here to Madison, Wisconsin, our hometown, uh, then I went into consulting for another 25 years, and uh, that was more strategic planning, but a fair amount of that also related to, to Asia and uh, the Japanese and Chinese markets. So, before you went there in the early 60s, yeah. what, did you, what did you imagine Japan to be like? Yeah. And then, and then well, you know, we... we uh, Actually, we had an advantage over most, and so it probably isn't a typical story because what I did before we went over there first, the first time is to take a master's course in East Asian Studies at the University of Michigan. And that was a great program. It was actually, as I found out later, probably better than Harvard or Cal, Cal Berkeley or any of them because they had about 10 disciplines. Uh, from music and art to history and politics for Japan, for China, for Southeast Asia. So you got a real good introduction to uh, the, the country and, and something, something about the, uh, the society before we went there. Uh, there was also a, a very intensive Japanese uh, language that at least got me started. My wife uh, had to wait until we took another year and a half of studies in Tokyo. So uh, our expectations were maybe different than uh, those who did not have that uh, privilege of studying uh, the country so intent intently before arrival. But I would say this, uh, yeah, you, we know a lot about it. Uh, this year with the virus is the first year, possibly the second in over 55 years that we haven't been back in Asia and Japan. And so uh, we stay close to it, uh, both socially and uh, with some business and uh, involved in nonprofits. But uh, like Wisconsin, uh, people expect us to know everything about Japan, and of course that's a joke. Uh, I couldn't tell you more than two cities in Door County, Wisconsin, and uh, there's a lot. Uh, you, you just, uh, just it's a complex country, and uh, uh, I don't want to claim any undue insights into it. <laughs> so you arrived the first time. Yeah, so 1964. What, so what was the big surprise when you you well, land and you start acclimating? With yeah, the surprise. You know, like I say, we knew a little about sure. the customs and all. Uh, 
I guess uh, one of the surprises was the the pollution in the air. There was oxygen tanks on the major intersections, and it was a it was more than a developing country, but it wasn't fully industrialized yet. And so, when Ines went out and hung up the sheets the first night uh, in the house we had in Tokyo, uh, it was full of ash uh, the next day. And, mm. And our sun never realized there were stars in the sky until we went up in the mountains. So that was one adjustment. And I would say as a footnote now, uh, and the numbers would bear me out, uh, they have cleaner air and cleaner water than we do at this point. But that was back in 64. Um, yeah, the... the uh, the custom that we, of course, we were struggling with language, and in those days it was all in Japanese and right. the subways. Yeah, and the all, country, yeah. yeah, so we had to count the number of stops from our house to the language school to make sure we, <laughs> we didn't go too far. But it gave us a real incentive to both learn uh, 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 written and writing Japanese as well as uh, the, uh, the verbal. So uh, mm -hmm. it was generally a good experience, and uh, you know, it was the first time we'd ever lived in a foreign country and uh, we were the minority and mm -hmm. it was all very interesting but uh, and and a lot of hard work uh, kids were two four and six and two of them had very little trouble uh, and one did have a problem uh, for a while uh, going to a school where at the beginning they couldn't understand Japanese mm -hmm. and and uh, being teased and all the rest so uh, yeah, our experience is probably not typical in that way. As far as food, um, yes. uh, we, we had a commitment that we were going to eat only Japanese food from day one. And uh, surprisingly, especially to the Japanese, we had almost no problem. Sashimi, sushi, uh, all kinds of food we, we just didn't like from the very beginning. Uh, the two exceptions were anko, which is kind of a sweet... Uh, soy paste that they put in buns and there's a couple of other applications and we didn't like that at the beginning and then skemono which is a Japanese pickle and uh, we had to work at those for quite a while we we love them now and uh, everything else is Japanese but uh, yeah we didn't have that much trouble the Japanese always thought oh boy you don't you can't in those days at least uh, when there were no sushi bars in America uh, they expected that you couldn't eat half their food, and uh, it was not the case with us. So, you know, one of the things that I found interesting, we were there in 2018, and uh, I remember we stopped in a, I don't know if it was a 7-Eleven or a, there's three or four of these, you know, mm -hmm. sort of convenience stores. Convenience stores that have everything. Yep. You know, the yeah. post office, the yeah. money, yep. the, the, yep. everything. And, uh and I, I purchased something, and the young lady, of course, I, because I had my app, but, you know, I, she was gesturing at what turned out to be a, a, a prize box. And she said, I want a prize. Uh, and the prize I won was <laughs> a, uh, I think it was a probiotic drink of some sort. And, um, and then one of our daughters said, well, there's digestive issues here or something or another. And, and, but anyway, I was actually quite touched by the, extensive effort she went through to get me my prize mm -hmm. you know, as, a, as a foreigner and, and not understanding anything about anything really. Um, so how did you find the interaction initially with, you know, the people, the culture, the, you know, you mentioned the schools, you know, how, how, and how did that play out? 
Well, it, it was always somewhat of a challenge. We got, uh, so our language was, uh, I could speak in public, uh, I could uh, have debates with Japanese executives in front of several hundred uh, people and that. So it got reasonably good, always with a Wisconsin accent, you understand. <laughs> of course. And I got to read the Asahi Shimbun, and uh, actually Ines was better than me in things like home drama and some of those things. And uh, so we were pretty good at the language, not never perfect, I think. Uh, I always tell people uh, when we then moved after a year and a half to a town about the size of Madison, Kurumeishi in Fukuoka Prefecture, that, and I thought back on it, but never thought anything at the time I could actually uh, do all of my taxes in Japanese without any tax tax advisor or anything else. Oh. Something I can't do with our complex system here <laughs> in, the in the U.S. <laughs> yes. But there, uh, so there's always, the Japanese is, it's fair to say, wonderful people. We've got some of the dearest friends mm -hmm. in our whole life. Uh, the, the nation as a whole is is racist, mm -hmm. and uh, it's very homogeneous. And we're gaijin foreigners. That means mm -hmm. uh, if you do the character, it's uh, the outside people. The first words that the kids learned when we did move down to Kurume were baka gaijin, which is fool foreigners, and they they were of course teased and all because we were the only Caucasians during much of that time in Kurume. So. You know, you, you got used to it and got a little thicker skin and, uh, you know, treated people uh, as respectfully as you could. And like I say, it takes longer to uh, make real close friends in Japan than it does in the U.S. But once you make them and once they gain trust, uh, you've got friends for a lifetime. And when we had our 60th wedding anniversary five years ago, we had three or four of those friends travel all the way to Madison, Wisconsin for three days. Yes, I remember. I remember. Yeah, so, uh, you know, there's a pros and cons. I think the most difficult thing is, is not the language as such, not the pronunciation, certainly not the grammar. Uh, even the, uh, the reading is basically just a humongous amount of memory and hard work, like, kind of like mathematics. But, uh, they, they relate to each other very indirectly. And so, uh, consequently, you're always psyching each other out, not just for, because you're a foreigner. And uh, often I would go to a business meeting and folks would, uh, we'd have a real good discussion and at the end there didn't seem to be any conclusion. And I would go, go out, I would be the only gaijin in the uh, meeting often. I would go back with one of my colleagues and say, what the heck happened here? And their their reaction was, we don't know yet, Bester. We'll be, be patient. We'll, I'll, we'll make a couple calls in the morning and clarify it out. So they, they have a higher tolerance for ambiguity than we do. And as Americans, you know, we like to uh, uh, talk fairly directly and f fairly frankly and... Uh, so that, that was always something that was somewhat challenging and different, uh, but you, uh, you, you finally uh, you, you, you got used to it at some point. I know you've mentioned over the years as we've talked about Japan that you were there during the great transformation, you know, and, and actually I thought about this the other day when I saw uh, a reference to the Demigod, which now is fading history in some ways, but yeah. um, 
I know you mentioned, you know, seeing the workshops in the 60s and then yeah. obviously the the great growth in, in mm -hmm. manufacturing prowess and Kanban, all, all these things in, in Japan. And so maybe you could just talk a little bit about what the implications of that for both the visitor, the economy, and what you observed over the arc of your time there. Yeah, well, um, you know, when we came there, like I indicated in the mid-60s, it was more than a developing country, but uh, not a first world country in many ways. In fact, the Tokyo Olympics, which occurred in October 64, was one of the, the landmarks, so to speak, in their, their effort to get back on their feet after World War II. And uh, uh, about 70% of the people who worked in Japan in those days were in Chusho Kigyo, the small or medium-sized companies under 100 people for all kinds of subcontractors to bigger companies and many of them made themselves and they worked six days a week and uh, people were still hungry it was not that long since world war ii when basically all the major major cities were flattened by bombing and uh so but they were working very hard and there was a real although there were different political issues there was all kinds of commitment to get back on their feet, to be one of the nations of the world again, and to be respected. And it didn't, thanks to the Constitution that uh, General MacArthur and uh, others developed, uh, number nine, Kujo, uh, it wasn't a sense of being, becoming a military project. Some, as the Chinese today, cheated and um, unfairly took American technology at the time. But they eventually evolved their their own research. Uh, uh, even today, I think they're the second or third after China and the U.S. with patents. That, that, that has to be qualified, but uh, they put a lot of money into research. They had a great education system. Uh, one day were very poor, by the way, and now they're, you know, the PISA tests, uh, international tests give, put them at number five or six in the world and in both math and science. They're not quite as good in reading, uh, and only the Chinese-related uh, countries are, are above them, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and a couple of four cities in China. So uh, they, they re that's K through 12, of course, uh, especially very good education. The universities probably are, are, are not up to international levels, and not up to the top international levels in some ways, but more, more people graduate from university in Japan now than in America, and by the way, it's more women than, than men. So anyways, there was this effort, and uh, they were booming along from the 60s, um, through the 80s at 10%, uh, 7% of growth, a little bit like China's done for well over 30 years now. And uh, they were the first uh, really non-Western country to industrialize again. I, I would say that uh, pre-war they were an, an industrial country. They had experience with their colonies and in Japan with management. So they had some uh, resources, not physical, but people resources that, say, a country like South Korea didn't have, and, and that, that helped also. So uh, then finally, they per capita for, oh, 
maybe I'm going to say eight or ten years up through the 80s, uh, was, was greater than the U.S. And uh, it was the second largest economy in the world. Mm -hmm. And they developed all kinds of unique uh, management styles, uh, the Toyota way, uh, Kaizen uh, by Imaisan, and uh, just-in-time inventory, and and that that other world uh, companies uh, learned from, and it, they were very effective. Uh, and uh, then it, the, the bubble, it, it, a bubble eventually was created, especially in the real estate markets. There was one point where. The, the land in downtown, only the land of the Imperial Palace in downtown Tokyo, I think was worth more than all of Canada, which, <laughs> which right. indicates uh, they had a bubble. Right, right. But be that as it may, uh, they were affluent. Uh, they had some of the best French restaurants in the world and <laughs> Japanese restaurants. And uh, uh, I would entertain guests sometimes and they would ask, they had to be special customers to sprinkle a little gold on their desserts type of thing. So they overdid it. And, uh, but uh, nevertheless, in many ways, the Japanese remained humble and realistic. And uh, when the, the crash came and uh, their stock market uh, in, I'm going to say 1989 was equivalent to our stock market, the Dow Jones being 30, 3,700, for example, and uh, it's still not back up to that today. And uh, our our stock market is obviously off the off the uh, chart. So uh, they're affluent today. Uh, they're they have pretty much full employment. They have managed the virus far better than us. They still have a as I mentioned, a very K-12 good education system. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they have, I'm, and I don't have numbers to back this up, but from experience, they probably have as much mental illness. <clears throat> Many children who have trouble going to school in one way or another, they do have some young gains. But they believe that uh, you don't put a gun in everybody's hand. And so, unlike America, our country, where uh, we have half of the privately owned guns in the whole world, uh, it's harder. Yes, they have rape. Yes, they have uh, domestic violence. But there isn't, in most cases, a gun involved. And so, I looked, I think, a year ago, they had 300 murders and we had 16,000. So, it's a pretty safe, orderly country. Uh, they know how to handle uh, tragedies like the Fukushima uh, earthquake and tsunami, and uh, the country works pretty well. They they their biggest uh, market now, like the U.S., is China. China. They're they're perplexed how to handle China, uh, and uh, some of their traditionally strong post-war companies like Matsushita and. Uh, Sony have, have been struggling for some time, but they, they come through with new companies and uh, there's research in, uh, in uh, not only research, but products in automation and robots and, uh, mm -hmm. and many other areas where the Japanese are, are leading. So, uh, and many of the products we use in our space travel are Japanese-made products. So, and they're a good ally. They do certainly rely on the United States for defense. Uh, they've got uh, 
China and certainly now. Uh, you know, one of the things I remember uh, prior to our visit in 2018, I said, I'm thinking about driving a bit. And you, you were sort of surprised and said, well, you can get everywhere and pretty much with fast trains or mm -hmm. buses. And, uh, and we did. I mean, we used the fast trains and took some buses. Uh, but we also drove, and that was really quite pleasant because we were up in the mountains and uh, and we went to, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, Hakone? Hakone, Hakone. Hakone yes. And we drove around there. And, and, you know, you get to the train stations and you can rent a car and, and all that. So tell us about your experiences getting around. Obviously, you visited all over the place. How, well, we, uh, we I mean, we've kind of been all over. I had customers, especially the warehouse, were all over the country. And, and actually, Secor, uh, which is a American fiber optic, fiber optic cable company, uh, likewise. And then uh, my wife did benefit concerts for third world, or, or organized them for third world projects in Tokyo and Osaka for over 30 years. But yeah, you, uh, the, the transportation system is, is excellent. It's consistent. It's on time. Uh, one of the reasons that the Japanese have very good quality in many areas, not all, not all, certainly not in banking, for example, is they insist themselves, the consumer, uh, that it be done well. And so, for example, if, if trains are 30, 60 seconds late coming from uh, Osaka to Tokyo, uh, 300 plus miles, uh, you know, they're complaining. Uh, you know, this is not right. So the transportation is pretty good in, in Tokyo or Osaka. With a little help, maybe you can figure you meet need one transfer and how long exactly how long it'll take you to get to XYZ in another part of Tokyo so that's good as Jim indicated but uh, Japan is about the size of California and actually most all the people uh, live in the 15% in the plains so to speak and by the way of those people, over 60%, I can't tell you exactly, live between Tokyo and Osaka, between the plains of Kanto and Kansai. So, uh, but, so people sometimes see that part of, Tokyo, of Japan, and it's a major part of, of Japan. Uh, but as Jim has indicated, if you can get a car from any station uh, and drive around some, you, you see not only the villages and uh, uh, some of the temples that are beyond, but also uh, it's a wooded country in many ways. It has forestry. It's very mountainous. Uh, and there's some beautiful, quiet areas all over Japan that uh, you wouldn't see if you simply stayed on the trains. So, um, yeah, it's uh, it, you, you have to think London, so to speak, and drive on the left side, but that that doesn't take it's a lot of adjustment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and and some of the enough of the signs are are in uh, either English or they're simply telling you the uh, the, uh, uh, the, the speed limits, and again that that's in the metric system. Mm -hmm. Another thing you might take a look if you're traveling to. Uh, a foreign country for the first time so yeah it's a it's a very uh, you can get into bad uh, uh, tra traffic jams if you drive from the major cities but like we're indicating if you can get down from to the major another major city and then to a small rural station and then get a, a car uh, you avoid uh, many of those uh, 
traffic jams as well. One of the things that surprised me a bit is we were in the mountains visiting an onsen, um, where the streets, the road signs that that illustrated or, or included the distance to Tokyo. Uh -huh. No matter where you were, it would always say, "Oh, you know, yeah. 180 kilometers to Tokyo." Yeah. So, what, is there a significance to that? It just well, you know, it's it, the word uh, when you go to Tokyo Agaru, you go up to Tokyo. And that has a couple of meetings. In fact, you do, from many parts of Japan, go up somewhat in elevation. But of course, uh, starting in 1600, when the real political power was in the shogun, and he moved, he moved not the imperial capital, but the, the, the major government capital to Edo, which is uh, currently Tokyo, mm -hmm. uh, that meant that you were going up to the, the people who had authority and uh, and all the rest and uh, one of the ways that they had peace for over 250 years was that the 46 different feudal hans, hans or feudal domains, that daimyo had to uh, had to keep his family hostage in Edo for much of the time and he, then there would be great processions from all the countryside up to Edo and that was also going up. It's kind of like going up to Jerusalem or, uh, you know, in Silicon Valley, you're going to the city type right, of right, thing. Right, right, right. <laughs> so what about books? For those books, interested well, in, in Japan, what, yeah, what, I don't know. what should we read? Uh, well, I'm not sure. I probably don't read as much as, uh, like I say, uh, there's an awful <laughs> lot I don't, we don't know about Japan, and but we, uh, we kind of get it uh, hearsay one way or another. Uh, you can get an English uh, uh, online uh, news, uh, Nikkei Asia, which uh, gives you at least uh, news. And some, about half of it is Japan, the rest is uh, uh, other Asia. Um, and I'm not too good at recommending books, but uh, Ed Reischauer is a name that he was uh, a Harvard professor and for many years a very respected ambassador. Uh, to Japan, and uh, especially during the Kennedy era, and he he's written history. If you look at that name, Reichauer, uh, that's it's you know he it would give you a pretty good history up till uh, uh, 1960s, I think, and, and that's always helpful to have something like that. Um, there uh, there are other there's uh, a fellow called Donald. Richie, R-I-C-H-I-E, that he's recently died. I didn't know him real well, but he, he had a lot of insight in Japanese culture. And he wrote a book called Donald Richie, um, The Donald Richie Reader. And that, that, that uh, is, has some different interesting insights. If you're a sports fan, there's a guy that wrote years ago, but I think it's still instructive about the society, but uh, if you, uh, what you gotta have wa wa is harmony, but this is a book about Japanese baseball, yaku, baseball, and because he describes it in some detail, you learn all kinds of things about how Japanese society is different than American society. And yeah, they play pretty good baseball, and a lot of those ball players come over to the major leagues eventually. But uh, you, they do it differently, and uh, so that's a that can be a. Uh, a lesson in Japanese society as well as uh, the sport of baseball. Uh, there's a novel, Shogun, 
uh, back to history again. Uh, that was a bestseller, I think. It's a, it's a novel, but uh, people have told me that it's historically it's, it's pretty accurate. It's kind of a historical novel that many people have read. Uh, those are some ideas. Japan restored Clyde Prestowitz, an old friend of mine, who just gotten a recent book out in China, or, or maybe it's going to come out in September, but uh, he, he, he tries to show what Japan could do in the next 50 years, and it was more popular in Japan than the U.S., as you might expect, but that's, that might uh, help with some insights as well. So, yeah. Um, that's uh, there's, a, there's another uh, book by E. Maison, another guy that I got to know fairly well, who was the creator of the Kaizen Institute. And I'm not sure E. Maison created the word Kaizen, but he he made it popular in management circles and had an institute and went all over the world. But he also wrote a book called 16 Ways to Say No. And uh, again, Maybe that, that could be helpful. So thinking about somebody visiting once it's practical again, mm -hmm. what would be your route? Would you say, where, where should people go? Yeah. Say two weeks, what, what would you do there? Yeah, I don't time? know. Well, one thing, if if you have any, uh, and you know, a job, a, uh, a trade, a profession, uh, or a hobby, uh, try to make some contact before you get there. I mean, uh, you, because if you find someone who has the interest you have in medieval history of whether it's Japan or Europe, you know, uh, then that, that can be a kind of... If you're a member of a service club like uh, Rotary Club, uh, there are Rotary Clubs all over mm -hmm. Japan. Uh, uh, although the Christian church is very small compared to, say, South Korea, uh, that's another contact that you could make either before or after you arrive in Japan. So there's that, and then it, if you're, uh, you know, if if you have a, if you have any exchange of families or could stay with the family, that can often be not only a good experience but a learning uh, experience as well. Uh, you know, you probably want to start in Tokyo. Uh, that's where the cheapest flights fly in from the U.S. Uh, and uh, uh, you know, it might not be a bad idea, and I don't know the, the contact, but to find a uh, English tour for one day just to get an orientation for the place, and then get on the, the trains and bum around to neighborhoods and uh, to bars and restaurants and whatever. I would say this, wherever you're staying, make sure they give you a name card or, or a map which shows in Japanese uh, where you're staying because it's, it's yes. conceivable you can get totally lost <laughs> and but you're okay as long as either for a taxi driver or for some friendly Japanese if you have in Japanese here's where I want to get to right. it may take three stops and uh, so uh, yeah Tokyo and then the bullet train uh, the Shinkansen uh, will take you to the Kansai area that's Osaka which is a one of our favorite cities, but not very attractive in a sense. It's kind of like the Chicago of Japan, and uh, but it's near Kyoto, which is the old capital. And if you want something a little different and are interested in history, there's a town not too far from Kyoto called Nara, N-A-R-A. 
It was the capital of Japan from 7, 710 to 784, before Kyoto became the capital. And it has some, it, it isn't a magnificent place like parts of Kyoto, but it has old temples and buildings that, that go back. I think the oldest wooden building in the world is a temple. And during that Nara period, uh, Japan uh, was quite international for a period and with great influence from mainly China, but also from India with uh, Buddhism coming in and uh, the characters and uh, much else. So, and, and of course, Kyoto, uh, the temples and some of the historic buildings there are, are certainly worth seeing. And as a footnote, uh, when World War II was going on and uh, Americans were, we were bombing uh, most all of the major cities in Japan, FDR had a uh, art professor at Harvard who talked him into not bombing Nara and Kyoto. And so, especially Kyoto has built a lot of modern buildings, uh, but they, the temples and all often uh, certainly go back uh, well into the 16, 18, 1700s. And uh, uh, the Japanese, have, they, they know that story and are uh, eternally grateful that, this, that FDR was, did that. Because there was certainly a lot of arms that were stored also in Kyoto and Nara. Uh, so, you know, if you want uh, a South Sea experience, Okinawa uh, at, the, at the far south, uh, there's some beautiful beaches there. There's a good friend of mine is, is uh, helping, actually an American out of New York City is, uh, is working uh, to, the technical university has been established but is being really endorsed and funded in a big way uh, down in Okinawa. If you have an interest in that, probably uh, you can make a connection. So, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of variety in Japan. It may not look that way always because the people are homogeneous, basically racially Japanese, but uh, a lot to see. And uh, I'm not very good as a guy, I'm sure, because we take so much to grant for granted. <laughs> so much experience. So what about the art scene? Um, you know, during our visit, we obviously went to a chunk of museums and, and markets, and uh, you know, so what was your, your experience in all your visits with the art? Well, I'm, uh, I'm probably not as knowledgeable as some. I think depending on the art, there's some great Western art there. There's the Japanese art of all kinds. There's a museum, for example, that I like to go to that it shows old Edo and all the, some of the typical homes and all. Uh, what is that called? Uh, Stamachi. I think it's called Stamachi Museum. But there's also, depending on what people are interested in, there's just a, a wealth of of uh, opportunity there. And I, I would suggest you, you Google it. Uh, a institution that I'm still closely related to is called the. International House of Japan. It is not a, uh, a museum as such. It was uh, established after World War II by the Rockefeller family and the Matsumoto family and saying, hey, enough of war. Let's see if we can talk peace and understanding for a change. And 
we do an awful lot of uh, exchange of people and lectures, but I mention that because it's located in a uh, 17th century garden, Japanese garden, which you don't have to be a member or anything. Anyone can, can walk through it and uh, appreciate uh, a Japanese garden. There's, there's another beautiful, well, there's parks, there's not as many parks as, say, New York City, but there are parks and they're very well kept up. There's Meiji Shrine, a, ma yes. a major, uh, you could get some sense, of maybe not a typical Shinto shrine, but that's a nice park. So there's uh, uh, a lot of opportunity for culture and art, uh, even for concerts. And the Japanese, like the Koreans and increasingly the Chinese, uh, are big fans of classical Western music and in fact I, I could make a case uh, maybe maybe some scholars would uh, counter but it, that classical music is more indigenous to Japan and uh, South Korea Western classical music than uh, it is in America because uh, not only a lot of blue-collar people go to a concert once a year or twice a year and everybody knows Beethoven's Nights. So there are also uh, concerts all over Tokyo at any time of the year. And, uh, and finally, what about um, cultural norms? You know, so first-time visitor, I think we were told to always pay attention to the escalator practices and things like that. Uh, I remember before we boarded a... Uh, the Shinkansen, the, the fast train, the cleaning crew came out and bowed to all the passengers, and you know. So, what 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 should the new visitor know? Well, Cultural. yeah, you can you can read up on it. There's a lot of of. Uh, it used to be uh, in the '60s and '70s that when you meet people, you even our best friends, and this was another difficulty for us in those days. You you never shook hands. You you didn't touch mm. or hug you bowed, uh, even when they were uh, intimate friends. And that's changed considerably uh, now. Uh, I wouldn't worry too much about that. You could wait for that person to extend their hand first and uh, before you do. And Japanese are very, <coughs> very tolerant of uh, folks who are in Japan for the first time. They're usually, usually very welcoming as well and, and helpful in many ways although many of them don't feel confident using uh, using English. But there are a couple of things that I always tell people, I think I told you, Jim, that where they aren't tolerant. If you go into a Japanese restaurant or a Japanese home, you usually take off your shoes and put on slippers. And then you take walk with your slippers till you get through the hallway to the tatami room or the top tatami uh, floor. And... Uh, take off your slippers. They, they don't want you walking with shoes or slippers on tatami. They can be uh, pretty insistent on that. Um, what else? Uh, uh, if you go into a common bath, and with very few exceptions, it's, it's separated by gender, but a public bath or a onsen, a hot springs in a Japanese lodge, uh, you always soap up and shower or at least wash before you get into that common tub with the rest of the folks. 
they're not tolerant of anyone who goes into that water with soap on. So just make sure that you, uh, you know, you, you shower down good before you do that. But there aren't many areas where uh, the Japanese are, and they don't expect you to uh, understand much of their uh, society and customs. In fact, they continually express surprise when you do understand some of them. But, so, uh, yeah, there's... Uh, they, uh, I think uh, the other thing you might be a little uh, aware of, and I don't, it happens. You ask for directions, and you get directions, and oftentimes they're very helpful. Sometimes they they just don't know how to answer a foreigner, and they give you directions that just get you away from them or out of their hair. So it's sometimes wise that you go so far and ask again for directions one or two three times and to make sure you're on the right track um, yeah but it's it's certainly uh, Japan is respected as a very modern um, civil and uh, educated, society uh, they took the lead in all that's going on in East Asia now whether it's South Korea Hong Kong Singapore Taiwan or now China uh, have been a, a role model for all of those countries as you've seen this tremendous industrialization and uh, increase in uh, very sophisticated technology throughout much of East Asia so uh, you'll run into many, many Chinese uh, tourists again once you, uh, once the virus uh, concern is over with. Uh, there's there's a lot of antagonism between the Chinese and the Japanese. Uh, there's a little condescension on the part of our friends in Japan. The Chinese government often uses Japan as a scapegoat. Uh, in most cases, but nevertheless, uh, anyone who's middle class uh, or above wants to go to Japan at least once and do a humongous amount of shopping. Amuse is a privacy-friendly and multilingual app for explorers.